Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. It's Bill Arnold, and I've got my friend Dr. Mark Muska on the studio line. He's actually in the studio in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, behind the microphone, so it should sound like he's right here with me. And this segment is called Ask the Professor, and if you have questions for uh, Mark, let me know what they are. He will do his very best to answer each and every one. All you have to do is send the question over on the text line, 877 933 for for over 30 years. Mark was a professor here at the University of Northwestern and moved into retirement, and I bet he's a happy guy. Am I right, Mark? I'm I'm pretty happy, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, I miss seeing you in person. I think I get to see you next month in person, so I'm looking forward to that. Maybe so, yeah. Awesome, yeah. So some good questions already coming in. Uh, sure. Here's a question, and I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this one, but I think it's interesting. How did the book of Revelation get off the island of Patmos? How did that get circulated? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, John here in the first chapter, uh, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, and here we go. And so... Uh, there's a couple observations here. Number one, uh, I don't think many of these apostles actually wrote down on paper or on parchment uh, these letters and the things that they did. Uh, They had, and I can never say the word, but they had somebody that was a secretary, so to speak, that they dictated to. And so that's one uh, possibility here is that he had people there with him. It wasn't like he was isolated and in solitary confinement or something like that on Patmos. Uh, by the way, Patmos was an island not too far off of the coast from Ephesus. Uh, there's real good church tradition that puts John in Ephesus the later years of his life. And so he was exiled to Patmos because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus here. They weren't happy with him, so they sent him out and uh, he has this vision while he's on the island of Patmos. And then I notice here, if you look uh, carefully, he says that he was on the island called Patmos. Mm. And so it may be that he's back in Ephesus now and maybe transcribing this. I mean, it's all speculative. It's not spelled out for us in the scripture, but that he's uh, putting to print now what his visions were, and uh, either he's writing it or someone is uh, taking dictation from him, but uh, that uh, enables it to then be copied and distributed to the church. And we have to keep that in mind, Bill. Uh, These letters, the Gospels, the letters and that, uh, they got circulated. It wasn't like there was just one copy and uh, everybody kind of hoarded their own copies of these New Testament books while the New Testament is being written. Uh, They were widely circulated. There's really good evidence that by the year 140, 160 or so, uh, that all four Gospels were circulating throughout that region of the world, uh, Europe, Asia, 
and uh, Africa. And so uh, that uh, they, they most certainly made copies of these things and distributed them. Yeah, this is why I like hanging out with you, because you give answers like that, and I understand what you just said. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, here's another question. Open okay. your Bible, Mark, to Psalm 82. Okay. You can head over there. It's kind of like right in the middle of your Bible. It is. Yeah. I don't probably need to tell you that. But Psalm yeah. 82, verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Mm-hmm. Is this God being, is this God being willing to share authority and looking to other uh, spiritual beings for uh this activity? What, what's going on here? Well, this uh, there's a, a lot of wi- a wide translation okay. of these words here that are are used. I don't have the original language in front of me here, but I suspect that word that's used for the gods there is the word Elohim. Mm-hmm, it is. I'd, I'd, have to, I'd have to look at that. And this is something that was used for the gods or the rulers or the great powers and forces that uh, Paul develops this a little bit for us in Colossians and in Ephesians, where he talks about the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. And so uh, there, uh, this is, you know, we're getting a little peek behind the curtain here at the spiritual domain in Psalm 82 here and in Paul's letters that uh, there's plenty of activity going on in that spiritual domain. It's not like God is sitting on his throne up there in heaven and he's dozing off because there's nobody else around. He's kind of bored and he's old and everything. (laughs) And so he's uh, snoozing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There seems to be plenty of activity here and uh, there are the witness of these Elohim or gods or rulers, principalities or powers, whatever names you want to give them. And uh, I, I don't know if it's the majority view, but I would suspect many scholars are talking about this in the angelic domain, that mm. these are spiritual beings that uh, are with God and uh, surround him in this heavenly place. So, Mark, is Elohim considered spiritual beings and God is considered the Elohim? Well, the, it's a, it's kind of a contradiction to call him the Elohim because the word Elohim itself is plural. Okay. In, in Hebrew, if you see a word with an I-M ending on it, it's plural. Okay. That's like S's in English that pluralize words. And so he is called Elohim. Gotcha. And oftentimes because he is the ruler and the sovereign over the spiritual forces that it uh, it can be often translated as the most high god to be, call him Elohim it's a legitimate term to use for him it's used all the time in the old testament for god mhm so Do- dr mark muska is my guest and if you have a question maybe one that's been bugging you for a while send it over via text line 8779332484 Maybe you were in a Bible study recently and you decided uh, we had quite a lively conversation and we're not ready to um, we're not ready to go to break yet. <laughs> we still have a few more minutes, but uh, we do. Yeah, okay. we do. Eight well, seven. Keep on then, but I, I am eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. So, Mark, let's talk about the sixty-seven times that Paul uses the word gospel in his letters. Mm-hmm. And then when he uses the word gospel, is he pretty much meaning the same thing every time? 
Uh, that's a really good question because uh, the term gospel is uh, used a lot today in the church, an awful lot, and it can be used for any number of things that uh, people are talking about where there's uh, terms that are used such as, well, gospel justice or mm-hmm. gospel righteousness and this kind of thing. And I think I know what people are saying when they use those terms. They're trying to say that these these causes, these moral issues, social issues, uh, church issues even, they're compatible with the very core of what the gospel is. Uh, I, I I think we have to be careful with that, and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people that disagree with me on that, but that, what's new? That, that happens uh, plenty. But uh, I see the Paul's use of the gospel, if he would reel this thing back in, and if somebody asked him what the gospel is, Apostle Paul, I don't think you're going to get much clearer than what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, he starts out that uh, chapter by definitively giving us the core of what this gospel is. So that from that core, there's all kinds of strands that can grow from it. But at its core, it really has a a, a pretty clear statement that he makes. So if we go to Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Yep. So is he talking about the gospel in a very broad sense or on a more specific individual sense? I think it's really precise there. He's talking about a message that is revolutionary, that causes us to have access to the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, eternal life, because of this message that we put our trust in and we depend on it being true. Uh, Let me just read it here in 1 Corinthians 15, because it's just so blatant here. And we've read this many times before on this show. Uh, Paul starts 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, Now I make known to you, talking to the Corinthian Christians here, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. And then he describes it. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, to which also you stand, uh, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he goes into the con- to, to the gospel. But if you just go that far, how can you miss it, Bill? Yeah. He says, this <laughs> is the gospel. It's like it's in neon lights flashing over your head. Gospel, you know, gospel. <laughs> He's yeah. saying, this is it. It's the gospel I preached to you. It's the one you received. It's the one in which you stand and in which you are saved if you hold fast to it. It's what I delivered to you, and it's what also I received. And now what does he say this gospel is? Halfway through verse 3, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared and he lists a whole bunch of people that Jesus appeared to. So if I'm going to boil that out, the core fundamental center of this gospel message is Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And I like to tell people, if your gospel doesn't start there, you got to work on your gospel. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the center point of it all. It's not the only thing that's said about the gospel 
in the New Testament. But heaven help us if we leave this out of what we talk about the gospel is. Hmm. So that to me, it is predominantly a message, and it is something that, like I said earlier, gives us three wonderful things, eternal life, peace with God, and the forgiveness of sins. All right. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. Ask the Professor is the segment. All you have to do if you want to have Mark answer a question that you have, text it over, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Okay, here's something exciting. When you sponsor a child with the Ministry One Child, you are linked with a boy or a girl who will know you by name and treasure the thought that you care. Most of them will pray for you daily. And if you write them, they'll write you too. The child you sponsor will receive not only educational assistance, but supplemental food, clothing, healthcare services, and opportunities for personal love and encouragement, and most of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cost is just $39 a month. That's just a little more than a dollar a day. You can't necessarily change the entire world, but what if you can change the world for one person? Sponsor a child now at MyFaithRadio.com. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Welcome to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. He's also my friend, which I love having him on. And it is called Ask the Professor segment. So any question you have, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. All right, Mark. I, you know, I've heard people talk about things like... Um, I I believe, but I don't know if I really believe. Almost almost <laughs> no. like there were different kinds of faith or different ways of believing the same saving message, and yeah. they weren't sure if they had the right kind. Yeah. Boy, is that common. <laughs> well, yeah. people, and you know, it's usually good-hearted people who sincerely want to follow the Lord. Uh, most of the time, they're struggling to do that in one form or another. You know, welcome to sin and chaos that comes from that when it, it re-enters our lives and we don't like it and we think, oh, I just don't believe enough. I don't have enough faith. And uh, I just, uh, I think what we have to do, Bill, is recognize that, well, I love what Jesus teaches about faith in the Gospels, he says it a couple different times where he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, and it's little, you can tell this mountain be cast in the sea, and it's cast into the sea. And so if I'm understanding him right, what he's saying there is, it's not the level of your belief that's important. It's what or who you're believing that's important. Your faith doesn't have any ability to cast some mountain into the sea. That's God's business. He can cast mountains into sea. And what we do is we believe him when he makes promises to us, and we depend on those promises being true. I love using a couple words for that, Bill, where we rely on them being true. We depend on them being true. I like to say it in the negative. If this promise that Jesus gives us, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has passed from death to life— I depend on that being true. If that's not true, Bill, I'm toast. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have a chance. I can go to church till the cows come home. I can throw money in the pot. I can even take care of the babies in the nursery. I can help little old ladies across the street. It doesn't mean beans. If Jesus' death on the cross doesn't provide forgiveness of sins for me and for you and for everybody else. You hear the dependence there? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a dependent on God. I am. And that's essentially what faith is. And what people think is, well, you got to have this perfect faith. You got to have total, you got to be totally convinced, no doubt that all of this is true. And I think that's where we go off if we're not careful. We need to talk about doubt and questioning more in the church, in my opinion, because we all have doubts about things, about God, about the Bible, about the church, about ourselves, about the future, uh, you name it. We've got those doubts, and we have to acknowledge that to say, sure, I've got questions. Sometimes I wonder if all of this is true. I love it when a student says, I'm just not sure if I believe that God exists. And I applaud that in the sense that thank you for being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. You're having genuine questions here. Let's talk about them and see what we can do to work those doubts and questions through and hopefully resolve them or at least minimize them. But that doesn't mean that you somehow have wandered into the woods and you've lost God, uh, uh, that he's, he's faithful because of who he is, and we put the faith that we've got in God. Uh, even when we do have our doubts. Remember when uh, Jesus is uh, healing people and he talks with, uh, I can't remember what the malady is of the particular guy, but he talks with a guy and uh, he says, do you believe I can heal you? And I love what the guy says. I wish people would put it on their dashboard and right there in their Bibles. Remember what he says to Jesus? He says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Mm Mm-hmm. That is such a great statement. I love that, yeah. Because it says, yeah, I'm depending on you, but I got my times <laughs> where it's hard to be able to to, to keep on uh, to, to trusting you for these things. So this thing about faith and how much faith we have— Take the faith you have and cast yourself upon God and Christ. I would just loved it. The church that my wife and I visited this last Sunday, uh, it was just wonderful here in Sioux Falls. We're still trying to find a church home. And at the end of the service, they sang a song. And you know what? If if Nat can get this baby up on the next break and show, uh, play a little bit of it, uh, that Selah sings a song that's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. No matter what doubts I have, no matter what difficulties I have, my Savior loves me so, and he will hold me fast. I was almost at the point of tears at that at the end of the service, Bill, because it just struck home, and my wife said the same thing. We have so many times when we're struggling and we're in the depths and we strive to keep on believing God, but thank God I don't hold on to him. Thank God he will hold me fast and he will not let me go. And that just, I think that's at the at the core of this, this question about, do I have enough faith? Do I believe enough? Yeah, you probably do. But God's still, you're a work in progress and he's going to help strengthen that as you grow as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And Mark, I bet Nat would be able to f- find that song. Uh, he's filling in for Rosie um, and I'm paying him with beef jerky, so I don't know if he'll be able to do it, but I'm doing what I can. So, Mark, you have never uh, wanted your kids to doubt whether you love them. Nope. All right. 
must be the same with God. He wants you to be assured of his word and his promises. Yep. So it, it's almost unnatural for a Christian to live in doubt about their salvation. Yeah. But, you know, it happens all the time, Bill. And if people were honest, they're too ashamed to really, really admit it a lot of the time. But they get knocked off their feet. Things happen unexpectedly. Think of all the things that have happened in our world in the United States in the last three years that have just completely turned people upside down. And in the midst of that, sometimes they do think, I wonder if I'm saved. I wonder if I really belong to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's where we go to the Word and we go to brothers and sisters and friends that can encourage us and remind us of what we do believe. I like to say it in terms of, you know, in the in the surfacey turbulence of all of this that's going on in our lives, sometimes it's good to get out of that and step back and think, okay, what do I really believe? Yeah, and, great. And that can help a lot. You're having doubts and everything's going wrong. Your day is miserable. You're <laughs> arguing with everybody around you. It seems like God is so far away. Step back from that. Get into the quietness of a closet or something and just say to yourself, what do I really believe? Mm. And that's where you come down to those true beliefs. I still believe in Jesus. I still depend on him for the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and peace with God. And he will hold me fast. I remember that. And it doesn't make everything go away, but it makes it better. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark Mosca. Um, I love the curiosity of this question. It is generally accepted that the book of Job was written by Moses, but how in the world did the specifics of the conversations between all four people with Job and also God get written? It seems like a lot to pass on down from oral tradition, or was it in a vision, or was it something else? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not so sure Moses wrote it. Uh, this thing, uh, it's possible that he did, but it seems from the language used in the book and the incidents and everything that uh, this, the events in Job at least, took place hundreds of years before Moses walked the earth. And so you might as well jump into the same kettle of soup, Bill, with the whole, <laughs> Pentate with the whole Pentateuch, because right. you go through the whole book of Genesis and the first few chapters of Exodus, and Moses isn't around, or the first chapters of Exodus, he's a little kid. He, he hasn't grown up yet. So uh, how did you know to write all that? And the answer, I think, is there, you mentioned it, that there was strong oral tradition and what we mean by that is these stories weren't written down, and Moses was probably the first one to write a lot of this stuff down in print, but it was told orally. People told stories, and because they didn't write things down, they were really good at remembering things and getting these stories straight. And so uh, we today, you know, I can hardly remember where I put my car keys this morning. You know, I mean, I have trouble remembering things. Their memories were good, mm -hmm. and they passed these things down really accurately from generation to generation. And then I combine that, that oral tradition, Bill, with the inspiration of the Scriptures by God himself, that God inspired the Scriptures. He so moved in the authors of these books that what they wrote down was what they 
wanted to say, but it also was what God wanted to say, and it was perfect, and that we don't have to have doubts about it because Moses lived a thousand years after Abraham did, that or five hundred years after Abraham did. Uh, that God, I like using a theological word for it. He superintended the writing of these things so mm-hmm. that they were able to get it right. Our- all right, Marky, we have to jump to break, but when we come back, lots more okay. with Dr. Mark Muska. Send your questions over. I got great ones coming in. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Mark, there's your song. Yeah, beautiful, lovely, isn't it? And I love the I love the words too. It's not just the music. Yeah, I wish I could play more of it, but that's okay. We have ta- we have talking to do and questions to answer. I know it. And you know what? Before you go any farther, I got to give a shout out to my friend Herb, who's struggling with uh, uh, the leukemia. He's going in for more chemo this week, but he's doing really well, and he and his wife are. Trust in the Lord for his healing, and we could sure use more prayers for that. He is a dear brother in Christ. Amen. Yeah, Herb is a great, great brother. All right, here's a question, Dr. Mark Muska, and if you have a question, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Could you explain John chapter 17, verse 3, and also verse 11? Okay, I should read them first. Why don't you please? In the context here, this is with Jesus is having uh, his last meal with the disciples, with the apostles. Uh, it's probably the Passover meal. And at the end of this, it's a absolutely dynamite five chapters. A lot of really good verses that people have memorized in John 13 through 17. And in John 17, Jesus turns to prayer to end it. In verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then he goes to verse 3, and he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is spectacular. He defines eternal life, and sometimes people think that eternal life is emphasized the length of it. You know, that it's, it's just not going to ever end. Hundreds of thousands of years just to start and all that. But I think Jesus here is not talking about the length of it or the quantity of it, but the quality of it. It's almost like you could translate this. This is eternal living. This is to really live. It's to know God, the only, uh, know uh, you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is... I love what one pastor said in a sermon years ago where he said, that's the the joy of heaven is heaven's not going to be anything if Jesus isn't there, if God isn't there. We want to be with him. That's eternal living mm-hmm. is to be with him. Now, the question might be, is Jesus here, is this getting to Trinitarian things here? He talks about that we may know that you, Father, 
are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Does that mean Jesus is saying he's not God? And I would say definitively no, because in other places in the Gospels, he makes it plenty clear that he is the eternal Son, the Son of God, and uh, this doctrine of the Trinity is still yet developing, and the Jews were having all kinds of trouble with that. They were ready to stone him a couple of times because of him saying that he was God, that he was God and God's Son. And so uh, this does not somehow disqualify that, that Jesus is not the eternal son, the the second person in the Trinity, fully God and fully, fully human. Now, uh, in verse 11, I think it might be the same kind of thing. Jesus is saying here, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves, talking about the disciples, they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And uh, I'm not sure quite what needs to be explained in that. It's saying that he is going to go back to the Father, and they are one, and they will continue to be one. And he wants to make sure that we are joined uh, as, uh, well, the apostles here are joined as one to the Father and the Son. And then later in chapter 17, in verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these men alone, the apostles, but those also who believe in me through their word. You know who that is, Bill? Um, Take a look in the mirror, buddy. That's you. That's me. Okay. He says, I ask for those who will believe through the word of these men here. That's all of us that belong to Christ. And he says that they also would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Wow. Wow. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Mm -hmm. So there's a great unity there of, of Father, Son, and all of us who belong to Jesus. Mm, I love that. Mark Muska is my guest. Send a question over, 877-933-2484. In Matthew chapter 24, Mark, verse 36, it says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not Mm -hmm. even the angels in heaven nor the Son. Mm -hmm. The question is, if Jesus is fully God and fully man, why did he not know when when these things would take place but only the Father? Yeah, and my answer to that is, Bill, I don't know. Okay. I mean, this is one that baffles us. Uh, Somehow, perhaps, this is part of what was veiled or shielded of Jesus' divinity when he took on a human nature. Uh, This is talked about maybe the clearest in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul tells us that though the Son, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he humbled himself— and emptied himself and took the form of a man. And we've we've debated over the centuries what it means that he emptied himself. And I think the best way that I've ever heard to understand that is, is that he voluntarily chose not to use the attributes of God that he has for all eternity as the eternal son. And part of that might be that he didn't know these things. How's that possible? Your guess is as good as mine. But it gets us into that mystery and that tangle of the Trinity and just exactly how that works, that Jesus can be fully God and yet completely human too. 
and he's only one guy. It's not <laughs> like he's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He's got right. split personalities or something. He's only one guy. Uh, good luck trying to to uh, figure that one up. I, I love what the council at Chalcedon did back in about 400 A.D., where they came up with the Chalcedon definition of who Christ is. And the thing, right, right, uh, it reads about 10 sentences, Bill, and every one of them are just loaded with technical theological terminology where they tried to hammer out exactly what the church believes about Jesus, fully God, fully man, and yet one person at the same time. It's a great mystery, and we still study it with great awe and great questioning. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest, 877-933-2484. Mark, this has come up before on the show, and maybe because sure. this is a person that is um, least mentioned and maybe a little obscure in the Old Testament, uh, we are always wondering if we understand uh, Melchizedek. Yeah. And I know that Jesus is not only occupying the office of king and priest, um, right? So... Yep. Are we learning something about those roles through Melchizedek? Uh, sort of. Uh, that uh, uh, Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis. In fact, uh, it, he was a, a peer. He lived at the same time as uh, Abraham himself, mm-hmm. uh, where you're talking way back there, probably close to 2000 BC. That's a long time ago, Bill. Yeah. And so. Uh, He's mentioned, and I think he would have been just a kind of, uh, okay, that's interesting in Genesis. But then the writer of Hebrews gets in there and talks about Melchizedek, and he sees that the Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest of the new covenant that he has has inaugurated. Uh, new covenant comes from Jeremiah 31, and he is the high priest of this covenant, but Jesus is not a, a priest according to the order of Aaron, the first high priest in Exodus. Remember, Aaron is Moses' brother, mm-hmm. and he's the first high priest. And I'm not talking about consecutive order here, like first, second, third order, but like uh, the Roman Catholic Church has the Franciscan order of priests and the Jesuit orders of priests. It's it's a grouping. It's a it's a it's a group that associates with themselves. And all of those priests who served in the Old Testament, according to the Mosaic Law, they were in the order of Aaron, the first high priest, and all the descendants after that were part of that order. All right, but now. Jesus is a high priest of a whole different arrangement, not the law any longer, but the new covenant. And he likens this, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7 talks about Melchizedek as Jesus is a high priest according to the the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was around before Aaron. It's completely different order of priesthood here. And, uh, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. I'm reading in Hebrews 7.1 here where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And he's of a different order, and this is the order of priesthood that Jesus is in now, a new 
covenant, a new arrangement of the way we relate to God. The new covenant, essentially, Bill, it promised in Jeremiah 31, God says that I will write the law upon their hearts, not just upon paper, but upon their hearts and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. The writer of Hebrews gets into that in the next chapter, in chapter 8. He says that first covenant with Moses wasn't perfect because then there wouldn't have been a second one. But because there was a second covenant, that means the first one was old, obsolete, fading, and ready to disappear. And he quotes Jeremiah 31 here and the promise of the new covenant that we receive in the Old Testament. Now, I know we're swimming in the deep end of the pool here a little bit. I'm That's sorry fine. about That's getting fine. so complicated, but it's it's not something you can easily just uh, portion out and uh, put out there the ABCs of it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Mark. Was church membership a thing in the early days of the church? By membership, I mean a process by which people are officially accepted into a church rather than organically participating and committing to the body. Yeah, that's that's a, a kind of a fun thing to trace historically, that uh, if you look at the church in the New Testament, you don't have any kind of membership council and some kind of grilling that you had to go through to become a member of the church. Uh, they, uh, Those who were aligned with the church, uh, they were welcomed and they could meet and gather with the church when they met together. Uh, it seems as though they met on the first day of the week, if Paul's any guidance to that. But uh, people were welcome and there wasn't some kind of litmus test there for them to be accepted into that fellowship. But then you've got to recognize the New Testament sees all kinds of trouble getting into the church with false teaching and false believers. And so they had to start using discernment as far as who really belongs to Christ and believes the gospel and who the phonies are that are meeting in the church for who knows what reason, uh, but they're not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that would make it necessary to uh, use discernment there somehow to know who belongs to the the true church that's meeting and gathering uh, directly. Even yet today, Bill, on any given time that the church gathers, you got to realize that there's going to be people there that really do belong to the Lord. They put their trust in the gospel and their followers of Christ. Uh, we're going to be with them forever. But any given gathering, you got to suspect that there's plenty of people there that aren't that that kind of believer and follower in Jesus. Uh, for crying out loud, a lot of the people who are too young yet to even understand the gospel, that we've got to wait a while and then lead them to faith in the gospel when they're old enough to understand it. There may be friends and family members of people that attend the church service, but they're openly not Christians. They haven't uh, made any kind of a commitment of faith to the gospel. And then you have others that have more sinister uh, uh, motives that are trying to bring some kind of disruption to the church or cause chaos or whatever. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if God would, you know, peel back the hearts of people in the church and let us see that, I think we'd realize this. This is this is the way it is. One of Jesus' parables makes this clear in Matthew 13. 
He teaches about the wheat and the tares, the wheat being those who truly belong to Christ and are part of the church, and the tares are the false believers. And if you remember the the parable, Jesus says that the farmer realizes there's weeds or tares sown into his wheat, and his servants ask him, should we pull out the weeds and get rid of them? And he says, no, wait till the harvest, and then separate them out. And Jesus says that's when this separation will take place between the true believers and followers of Christ and those who don't belong to him, but they're right there in the midst of the church and the gatherings of the church. So mm. uh, I think that, you know, that's that's a long way around the block there to say that uh, church membership, I think it's a helpful thing today for churches to understand where people are at as far as the gospel and their belief in it uh, before they embrace them as members of their church and have them teaching Sunday school classes or uh, supervising things, uh, that's uh, a healthy thing for them to know. It can go bad on you if you're not careful and start being judgmental and all this kind of stuff. But it's a it's a good idea to have, I think, a membership for a local church so you can have that confidence in these people. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We still have time for a question or two. If you have it, send it over, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, send it over, 877-933-933. Two four eight four again eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Mark, a question that came in: Do you think that uh, pacifism is biblical to the extent that some people will not protect themselves or their family in an instance where, say, someone breaks into their house, referring to lethal force to defend? Yeah. Thanks a lot for that one. I don't know if I can get out of that one without making at least some people angry because that's a big moral issue and it's been around for a long time. We have to recognize, Bill, there is a broad spectrum of people in the church who love Jesus and they follow him the best they can and they love one another, but yet they disagree on this, uh, that uh, some of the traditions that are pacifists, uh, maybe one of the most recognizable ones is the um, Mennonite church. If you read uh, the denominational statements, they will talk about this uh, pacifism. They will not participate in uh, in any kind of violence, uh, warfare especially, uh, but uh, uh, this is uh, uh, this. Uh, they have a very strong stance on that. But there's many Jesus-loving people in churches that disagree with them on that, and especially with warfare, they get into discussions about is is warfare ever justified, and the just war kinds of theories about whether 
uh, we should endorse going to war under certain circumstances. And uh, this has been a real issue in the United States throughout its entire existence because uh, most of the leaders in the uh, in the uh, country have had respect for uh, doing the right thing and and uh, living morally and making moral actions that are are virtuous as a country. So. Uh, when you talk about breaking into homes, though, this is where the pacifists sometimes get pushed up against the wall to say you've got someone threatening your family and uh, are you supposed to just let them uh, do their thing and not do anything to defend your home, even if it means uh, lethal action? Should Christians be uh, – should they own guns? Uh, should they be uh, – uh, in that position where they have guns, I I like to point out that if you own a gun, you better be able, to, you better be ready to use it. It's one thing to have it, but does that mean you're ready uh, to to use this thing? Pacifists will oftentimes appeal to wor- Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew chapters five through seven, and especially in uh, chapter five where uh, he makes a case here that, uh, uh, I'll just read it, Matthew five thirty-eight. he quotes from the law here, and he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and now here's what Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go a mile, go with him too. Uh, Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And so uh, this turn the other cheek, it's it's a proverb. We have it in our our society that uh, we are not to retaliate. We are not to seek to do to others what they have done to us. And so uh, I don't know if I can unpack that sufficiently, Mm -hmm. Bill. I mean, there's so many different scenarios and factors that need to come into that discussion. It's, it's a very difficult, uh, a very difficult discussion. What gives me hope is the church has been discussing this for centuries and there hasn't been some single answer that everybody's come up with and we all agree on. So, People a lot smarter than me who are much more godly and love Jesus more than me, if they couldn't resolve all the questions, I'm going to have probably be realistic enough to say I'm going to be left with questions too. I'm not sure. Okay. Mark, why did Paul, how did Paul respond to Judaizers? <laughs> he was not real kind. <laughs> uh, well, what, what did Judaizers believe? The Judaizers, this is a name we use for them, Uh, these were the people who uh, held to the idea that for someone who is a a Gentile, a non-Jew, for them to become a follower of Christ, uh, the language we use today is to be saved, to put their faith in the gospel, to be able to be a follower of Christ, those Gentiles, in essence, had to become Jews to become Gentiles. And the way you become a Jew, if you're a man at least, the initiating uh, uh, ceremony is circumcision. And then you commit yourself to keep the law. Uh, This was a big issue in the early church. Uh, It finally boiled over to the point where the church had to have its first council 
in Acts 15 to settle this because Paul, Barnabas, and Silas were leading Gentiles to faith in the gospel like crazy. They were multiplying incredibly, but these Judaizers were causing trouble. And uh, let me just read a little bit of this out of Acts 15, that uh, it says that some men came down from Judea to Antioch, where Paul was, and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And it says there was a great dissension and debate with them, and they determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. And they got together, and they arrived in Jerusalem, and they were received by the church. And then it says in verse 5 of Acts 15, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, there's kind of good news here. Some Pharisees seem to be getting the message here about Jesus, but there's bad news where they're not being able to get out of their Pharisaical attitude enough to realize that uh, this uh, this thing about keeping the law is old news, the new covenant now uh, saved by grace through faith. So Paul had to deal with this. And if people want to read this, I know I'm going on a little bit, but maybe the definitive book where Paul takes on these Jewish uh, Judaizers is in the book of Galatians. And in the first three chapters of Galatians, Paul hammers them and says that they are poisoning the gospel message and poisoning the early church with this message that you have to keep the law to be saved. Wow. That's, I'm going to go home and read the first three chapters of Galatians tonight. Oh, man, he hammers them. Yeah. Uh, uh, usually Paul is all folksy and nice and sweet with, his, <laughs> with the yeah. people he's writing to. After he gets done greeting him, look at what he says to them in Galatians 1.6. He says, I am amazed you are so quickly deserting him who called you for the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And listen to what Paul says. But even if we, apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to which we have preached to you, he is to be cursed. And literally that means that he is to be damned to hell. Whoa. He is to be anathematized, all right? Yeah. And what were these people saying? Paul, again, he's mad. Have you ever had your dad talk to you like this? In chapter 3, verse 1. Paul starts out and he says, You foolish Galatians. Wow. Doesn't that sound great? Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? And this really sounds like a dad here in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. You ever have your dad say that? He wants to know a whole lot. And he says, I just want to know one thing. All right. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing oh, with faith? Mark, it's awesome, but we're out of time. Thank we you are. so much. Oh, okay. It's been great. Maybe that, next time. That All wraps right. up our show. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.